Welcome to the Rest Talk channel, a scientific podcast around type 2 inflammation and respiratory diseases. This podcast is supported by the medical department of Sanofigenzyme. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Professor Sanna Toppilasalmi, ENT specialist at the University of Eastern Finland in Kuopio. And joining me today is the distinguished Professor Philip Fevert, ENT specialist at the Department of Otorinolaryngology at the University of Ghent, Belgium. How are you today, Philip? I'm fine, Sanna. Nice to meet you again. Great. So let's kick off with a fundamental question. Uh, how does our understanding of type 2 inflammation contribute to informed treatment decisions for CRS with nasal polyp patients, particularly in choosing among systemic corticosteroids, surgery and biologics? Well, I think we first look at uh, who is the patient, what is the phenotype, and the phenotypes is clinical traits like uh, the polyps, how large are the polyps, is there asthma, is there um, NSAID, exacerbated respiratory disease, how severe is the asthma, how severe is the patient's. And, and then we will, of course, start always, if you have a primary nasal polyp patient, we will start with nasal saline rinses, with uh, nasal corticoids, um, sometimes with systemic steroids, and then we will see how the patient responds. If the patient responds well, you, you have some patients that actually do very well under this local treatment, and they don't need surgery. However, my experience is that most of those patients will need surgery. And at this stage, if a patient never got surgery and there is no severe other comorbidities like severe asthma, we will do a surgery first and, and, and look how that works. Actually, we know very well how what the outcomes is of the surgery. We did a 12-year prospective follow-up. And in that study, we saw that patients that... Um, 80% of the patients over 12 years, the polyps recur. Now you can say that's very bad, 80%. Why do we do surgery anyhow? Well, it's so that most of the patients, 50% of the patient, you can control by combining surgeries, opening the sinuses, and then getting the corticoids locally there, because that's the reason why we do surgery. 50% you can control after one surgery. But 50% of the patients you cannot control after one surgery and they keep on having need for antibiotic systemic steroids and around 40% of those patients will have even revision surgery after revision surgery after revision surgery. And for that type of patients, we need better outcomes. And so therefore, I think we should preserve biologicals at least today because they are expensive. So it's a stepwise approach. We start with the normal local treatment, nasal corticoids, and we step higher with this with the surgery to open up the sinuses to deliver our local steroids in a better way to the nose. And if that fails, then we will go to biologicals. And that is how we will do that. 
Indeed, the question is if your patient has comorbidities like severe asthma, because sometimes you have the case that your patient has severe asthma and get, get biologicals for the severe asthma even before you have done the surgery. And that's good. I, I think in that case, the patient can be on a biological even before you do a surgery. And, and I've seen from my experience that some of these patients never require surgery anymore because they are so well responding on the biologicals. And so it depends a little bit what the combination is of disease you get in front of you and your patient. Yes, uh, that is really true. And actually, it's very interesting of your findings of the outcome of, of polyp surgery because we have relatively similar findings in our cohort in Finland, so multicenter cohort. So it's really seem that this is really true, that there is a part of the patients, around 50% of polyp patients who indeed are not controlled after polyp surgery or cytosurgery. So I, I fully agree. Philip, are there specific challenges in managing then CRS with nasal polyp patients who usually have type 2 high inflammation? And how does the presence of type 2 inflammation influence the prognosis mm. and long-term outcomes of polyps? Is, yeah, so, so that's an interesting question again, because in this 12-year follow-up post-surgery, we took biopsies actually during the first surgery, and we looked into the endotype of the patient. So we measured cytokines, AL4, AL5, uh, ECP, uh, um, TGF-beta. So we measured all these things, type 1, type 2, type 3 cytokines. And what we found is that patients who have high tissue AL5 and high tissue eosinophils and high tissue IgE, that's the kind of patients that actually need revision surgery. So if we look back, those with a high eosinophilic inflammation and high local IgE into the tissue, uh, we could even uh, actually, we, we, we would be able to predict that they were those patients needing revision surgery. Now, of course, it's not, not everyone can measure IgE and ECP and AL5 in nasal polyp tissue uh, at the moment of surgery, we have a lab, we can do that because we are university. So, so the question is, can, can you do that in another way? I think type 2 patients, uh, patients with uh, asthma and ERD, so respiratory disease, that's the patients actually where you have this high IgE and you have this eosinophils. That's also why I think if you, you have to measure blood eosinophils, blood eosinophils are very bad surrogate for nasal findings, but they have some indications. So if you have an increased eosinophilia in the blood and you have asthma and, and ERD, probably the IgE will be higher as well. Of course, if we would be able to measure IgE and, for example, nasal secretions or AL5, that would be an easier way, but also at this stage, that's not commercially available. But we did that uh, so, so uh, at that stage, and that was also predicting the outcome. So indeed, we so the unmet need is that we cannot define better type 2 at this stage than looking into blood and maybe taking a tissue biopsy during surgery and measure the number of eosinophils. So, so that's an unmet need. But indirectly, we can predict if you have polyps, asthma, and ERD, it's very likely that you are the bad phenotype 2 high patient. 
Yeah, that is true. And and again, I, I think uh, I have the same idea based on the literacy. Also, if I remember right, there are some Asian studies showing also that the blood eosinophil to neutrophil ratio predicts uh, also uh, the early relapse of nasal polyposis after surgery and the need need for, for a current polyp surgery. So indeed, uh, still the, the blood tests, although they are not fully comparable of what's happening in the nasal mucosa, they are relatively easy, easy test and available test. But we still need more studies. And it's it, very, very good and impressive, actually, how much you have been studying this uh, at your university hospital. So how about blood IgE levels? And then, uh, so, or, or on the other hand, do you, do you usually recommend to take as a routine blood IgE and blood eosinophils for polyp yeah. patients? Other like routine tests in, in every clinic, yeah. what are your recommendations? Well, we found out also in the 12-year follow-up that if, if your patient is allergic, that is also giving a bad outcome. We don't think allergy is a driver of nasal polyp disease, but when we have allergy and nasal polyps, you have higher risk of uh, of um, of revision surgery. So we do blood eosinophils, IgE specific IgEs to look into the uh, uh, into the allergic profile as well of the patient. And, and, and there is a relationship both with blood isnophils and with IgE and with allergy towards recurrence and need of revision surgery. So yes, we do that and I recommend to do that. On the other hand, we do know that, for example, for the indication of some biologicals, that may differ. If you give, for example, an anti-R5, it's important to know the number of eosinophils, but Ig probably in the blood doesn't matter. If you give an anti-Ig, yeah, then of course you need to know the IgE because you have to dose based on the on the IgE levels. If you give an anti-R4, R13 receptor antagonist, we know that blood eosinophils are important and that those with higher blood eosinophils seem to even do better, although those that with lower eosinophils seem also to, to respond if they are nasal polyp patients. So yes, indeed, it depends of the kind of drug you choose, the biological you choose, whether you will have to do that. But at this stage, we have three approved biologicals. And I think, therefore, you need to measure IgE, total IgE in serum, and blood eosinophils uh, if you want to consider all three of them. Yes, I, I think that that is very important. And exactly like you said, that it's not a kind of fully correlating with, with, a, with a good benefit of biologics, for instance, or surgery or any treatment, but it, it gives some some um, information about the yeah. maybe the risk and the and the endotype yeah. and it's connected also to asthma if it's it's a comorbidity so for asthma for instance it's very important currently yeah. to know yeah you are right I, you are right sana i think for asthma it's much more clear than for nasal polyps. For asthma, they have clear if your IgE or if, if your blood isnophils are like that, then you have to give this. If your blood isnophils are higher than that, you have to uh -huh. give this. In nasal polyps, it looks like we have a much more homogeneous endotype and phenotype where we don't see this kind of uh, very clear algorithm 
and and that makes it a little bit different. Maybe because the nose is so small that the influence on the blood levels is maybe less than a big lung, which is a big surface. But you are right that what we see in the nasal polyps in the blood is less related than what you see in asthma, and therefore we cannot make this very beautiful algorithms as the lung physicians do for their severe asthma. Yes. But maybe what do you think uh, during biological therapy, do you follow uh, blood eosinophilia, for instance, if it's uh, more than 1500? So maybe to change uh, fr from from um, uh, some to another. Uh, and actually pulmonologists, they follow also pheno, so the, that uh, is associated with the bronchial eosinophilia. So if the pheno raise is very up, uh, or is, those is patients very high, showing the local eosinophilia. So that may also help in a decision. And then if there's a need to change or, or consider other therapy. Yeah, I think you are right, Sana, is that patients with very high eosinophils, where we think of the Church-Strauss syndrome or the uh, EGPA, in, in those patients, of course, uh, we have to be careful and, and I think that's a different kind of cluster of disease with EGPA or Church-Rau syndrome, where, uh, so hyperesinophilia, where we need to make different choices in, in, in biological. So I, I, you are right, in that patient, we need to measure blood isnophils to be certain that you have not isnophils uh, higher than 1,500, because that might influence the choice of your biologicals. Exactly. And then maybe also for ENT specialists, it might be important to consult a, then pulmonologist or internal medicine specialist, rheumatologist, etc. If, if, uh, if it's very high, that's true. But we go on. And actually, the next I would like to discuss with you, Philip, is, is a very, very curious thing, because when the polyps grow, they are first very small, like we call baby polyps, and then they grow and uh, things get worse, uh, sometimes uh, even very fast. So uh, what would you think? Are there any ways to repair the nasal epithelial barrier uh, in a proactive way? So that uh, could this be done early? So that uh, could this be prevented? so that the baby polyps don't grow or they even don't start to develop? Or could we also kind of, even in the childhood, know who are going to develop with polyps and, and then uh, inhibit this, this uh, reaction to come? I think barrier dysfunction is a very important uh, feature in nasal polyps, and it can be primary or acquired. It can be inborn if you have, um, yeah, if you have an inborn or a bad barrier, the likelihood to have polyps is higher. But quite often, I think it's the combination. I think quite often it starts with a viral infection that breaks your barrier, and then you get uh, quite often a colonization, for example, with Staphylococcus aureus that makes advantage of this barrier dysfunction to stay there and to be there and to keep on trigger, triggering chronically the, the mucosa and, and then driving this disease. So I think barrier dysfunction and the 
Staphylococcus aureus, for example, taking advantage of the situation to perpetuate the disease is an important feature. I also believe that if you treat, for example, with a biological, and it can be any biological, that we can restore this barrier and the dysfunction in some of these patients, requiring, for example, less antibiotics of seeing less infection. And actually, there is a very interesting study in the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, we were asked to give us advice whether, for example, blocking our 413 receptor uh, and with, with a receptor antagonist was dangerous or beneficial in the COVID pandemic. And what we did is we looked into the asthma trial and in the nasal polyp trial. And what we saw very interestingly is that actually the number of, of infections, upper and lower respiratory infections in the asthma trial and nasopolyps trial were much lower. And second is that where there was a less need of antibiotics in those patients. So this actually tells you that probably how we had a barrier restoration and that's why we have um, that, that the barrier was restored and we had less infection, we were less vulnerable for, for respiratory infections. Of course, we now have to prove, for example, if you give a biological, that you have less Staphylococcus aureus colonization, that would be the proof of the pudding. And indeed, for example, in another disease where biologicals is used, for example, atopic dermatitis, they already have shown that the colonization of the skin by treating with biologicals was going down so that you have less colonization. So I think indeed the barrier is very important, is a crucial player in this disease. And we can restore it. I think that's at first what we see now with the clinical trials that I think biologicals can restore this barrier's function. Yes, that is amazing, truly. How about... Are there any possibilities to, to avoid or prevent Staphylococcus aureus colonization for some patients who probably have uh, in part genetically or due to genetic reasons, kind of uh, aberrant uh, epithelial barrier function and innate immunity in the, in the airway mucosa? Or is it, is it uh, possible to be avoided? It, it it's hard. I think yes. that thirty percent of the population are anyhow carriers of Staphylococcus aureus. Not all are pathologic, but it's it's hard to 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 extinct the Staphylococcus aureus from a patient. You have to treat the family. You have to treat the patient, and even then, the Staphylococcus aureus will do that. In the beginning, when we started our research, we tried to give doxycycline and, and mupirocin ointments and try to extinct these stuff. That had some effect. Eh? We, we have to be, so we, we, we did that, but it's the other way around. Now we see if you give, if you treat a disease and you restore the barrier, is that you don't need to give these antibiotics anymore. So I think it's, Giving antibiotics is not a solution. Uh, so, so I think it's rather restoring the barrier that will be better than giving an antibiotic. You, you will never succeed to get the stuff rid of the staphylococcus with an antibiotic only. Yes, I fully agree. Antibiotics definitely are not the solution as a routine, but we'll, we'll probably see in the future, can this be this uh, kind of cascade, can it be uh, prevented somehow if we recognize those people early enough who probably will have problems yeah. and, and may, may develop 
vid polyps och aspirin intolerance or, or asthma etc. So, so we need more studies. Then if we are back in the clinical work of yours, so what is your recommendation uh, when, you, when you then see these very severe polyp patients? Uh, do you use a systematic approach or structures, methodology uh, uh, when, when clinically um, kind of um, uh, making the statement whether the disease is controlled and what to do next? Yeah, it's, it's all about whether your patient is controlled or not. And I think there is several ways to do that. You can ask to your patient, how are you today? Do you feel well? Are you controlled? How do you feel? And I think this is already a question we always do. How are you today? Is your disease better, worse? Are you happy with it? The problem there is that it's very subjective and patients quite often are very polite because they had to wait a long time to see you. So, and they don't want to disappoint you. So, so you have to measure it in a better way. And control, we have some discussion now how to define control. Is it only a patient matter? And should the patient say, I'm controlled? And can we measure something? Like, for example, with the SNOT22, you ask 22 questions on symptoms in the nose, on sleep, on, on, on well-being, on quality of life. That's, of course, a more objective way of looking at that. And and and, and we can look into the nose. The question is, is, is looking into the nose part of control in a recent question or in a recent um, uh, consensus meeting, we think that just control should be something based on questions on the patient first and also what the medication the patient is on. Because if your patient feels well controlled but is all the time on systemic steroids, you cannot say that the patient is controlled. So we think control is a patient matter, uh, whether there are symptoms, Second, and whether this is under what kind of medications you are getting this control. And and and, and I think that is what we say that is control. Um, and of course, the, the next step is, of course, how long can we get this control? Uh, and, and that's the next question. Yes, I fully agree that it is important to ask questions, uh, maybe also... Um, validated questionnaires and, and then then of course to check the polyp score and and uh, uh, actually do you use routinely uh, questionnaires such as not 22 or yeah. this epos guidelines of uncontrolled polyps of crs uh, based on certain symptoms and then a need for rescue therapy Within six uh, the, months. The, the EPOS 2020 table on control includes symptoms of patients, includes the nasal polyp score, and includes uh, use of medication. We don't use the table as such, but we use it always in what, if I see the patient, I do that uh, automatically. It's I ask these questions anyhow. I look in the nose, I ask, how is your nasal obstruction? How is your smell? Uh, yeah. um, how is your other diseases doing and and which medication that you need so so you do that automatically i think everyone uses the epos table automatically just by routine thinking or by habit um but indeed we shifted also and we use also now the or since many years we use the snot 22 we give it to our patient in the waiting room and then you see immediately the score and it gives you a feeling if your patient has a snot 22 of 60 or 30 or 35 
and and I just write it down what the polyps, uh, well, what the SNOT twenty two is. I do like the SNOT twenty two. I I think it's a marvelous tool, um, and and so I recommend to use that. Yes, me too. And what about do you use routinely uh, smell test sniffing sticks or something else? And then do you use this polyp score that actually? There's an excellent uh, uh, European Academy's uh, task for consensus paper uh, that was guided by you. And by and, you. And, uh, yes, our group so, so uh, included nice cartoons showing really how to perform the polyp scoring. So, I mean, do you use it when you train the students and, and the residents of ENT allergologists? Yeah. We use, of course, a nasal polyp score. I think it's used in all the trials. Uh, some may critic the polyp score, but I think it's a solid score. You, you, it's a very stable thing. Uh, it's very reproducible, and and I think it's important that we speak the same language. Uh, it, it doesn't matter where you're from or who it is, but I think if we use the same things, not twenty two. Uh, nasal polyp score. We have to speak the same language. If we if we talk to each other in symposia, it's important to use the same outcomes, and it's important for uh, governments, for FDA, for the EMA in Europe that that we talk the same language. And and these things are very important to use validated good scoring system like the nasal polyp score and the SNOT twenty two. So I recommend indeed to use these things. Yes, I also recommend them. And how about the smell test? Do you recommend to do it in everyday clinic or certain no. situations? We, do, we don't do that. So, so, so we do a smell test with the 12 sniffing sticks for studies. We use the upset, but that's for Europeans not always that easy. Um, and it is also time consuming. But Quite often in a nasal polyps, it's quite black and white. Uh, so it's quite, do you smell? Do you, don't you smell? Uh, so quite often those patients have anosmia. Um, I'm happy with the, the fact that the patient, I don't smell anything or I smell a little bit or yes, my smell is back. That's very good for me. Indeed, in, in, in our setting at academics, we do now sniffing sticks routinely or upset routinely, but that's more because we are interested from a research thing. I'm not certain I would do that if there would not be research, but that's maybe because in Belgium, the, the smell testing is not so good to reimburse. <laughs> it's yes. that I'm influenced by that. Of course. Thank you very much. Thank you very much and goodbye.